Morning Fullerton. Here are your headlines for the first week of August. Number one, new mental health law and lifeline takes effect. Bill SB 221 is a mental health law that guarantees Californians the right to timely mental health and substance use disorder sessions with a certified therapist. This bill went into effect on July 1st. It was signed into law in 2021 by a bipartisan vote. The bill requires HMOs and all other healthcare insurance companies to provide mental health and substance abuse disorder therapy sessions as well as inpatient or outpatient treatment within two weeks of having their intake submitted. Do you need immediate counseling? Since July 16, the three-digit dial code for suicide and crisis lifeline became available. The 988 phone number is a crisis hotline call center providing access 24-7 to a live agent. The service is free of charge for anyone in need of support while going through thoughts of suicide, emotional distress, as well as a substance use crisis. Number 2. Council Supports Audit of Orange County Power Authority Citing recent leadership and transparency concerns about the Orange County Power Authority, City Council voted unanimously on July 5th to support an independent audit of the agency by the City of Irvine, as well as to draft a letter requesting answers to the issues raised by a recent OC Grand Jury report. OCPA is a community choice energy agency that was established in 2019 to give members cities a greater mix of renewable energy. Currently, OCPA's members include Irvine, Fullerton, Huntington Beach, Buena Park, and unincorporated areas of Orange County. The grand jury report expressed concern with the lack of relevant experience of OCPA CEO Brian Probolsky and city's numerous problems with OCPA transparency. Number 3. Pines at Sunrise Village Public Hearing Cancelled City Council cancelled the public hearing regarding the Pines at Sunrise Village Development Project at 1144 Rosecrans Avenue on July 19. The proposed development had sparked opposition from many neighbors and business owners from the Sunrise Village Shopping Center, much of which would be destroyed to make way for new homes. The council has not yet set a date for when the project will come back for another public hearing. Number 4. Council and Community Discuss Status and Future of Hunt Library City Council received an update on the Hunt Branch Library on July 19 from city staff as well as Arts OC, a possible program partner for future use of the city-owned building at 201 South Basque Avenue. The update was requested following reports of recent vandalism at the Hunt and the possible termination of Arts Partnership with local nonprofits Heritage Future and Arts OC. The city manager said that Arts OC is still interested but Heritage Future is not. The council gave city manager direction to reach out informally with other potential program partners for the use of Hunt, which is currently closed to the public. Richard Stein, president and CEO of Arts OC, gave a presentation on the community outreach his group has done and the vision that emerged from this. City staff also gave a presentation on current and upcoming building improvements to the Hunt, which were funded by state grants secured by Assemblywoman Sharon Quirksilva and State Senator Josh Newman. Both council and members of the public expressed concern over the recent vandalism and said that protecting the building should be a top priority. Alrighty, that is it for this week's headlines. Journalists behind these stories are Jennifer Almedo and Jesse Latour. Next up, we have an interview with Professor Nin. So today on the Observing Fulton podcast, we have Professor Chorsuan Nin with us. Chorsuan Nin is a semi-retired professor of anthropology at California State University, Los Angeles. She is an award-winning applied sociocultural anthropologist with expertise on issues related to culture, ethnicity, race, racism, identity, and diversity with a focus on Asia and North America. She has conducted research and published on the Vietnamese boat people in the refugee camps in Southeast Asia and the Dreamers, Dhaka students in California. 
Dr. Nin founded the BA degree in Asian and Asian American Studies and co-founded the Ethnic Studies College at Cal State LA. In the Fulton community, she has served for 24 years on the Board of Directors of the Orange County Human Relations Council and for 10 years on the Board of Directors of Orange County Sheriff's Community Coalitions. Today, majority of our conversation will surround her book, Identities on Trial in the United States, Asylum Seekers from Asia. Hi. So thank you, Professor Nain, for being here today. Uh, let's jump right into the question. So how did you get introduced to the world of asylum cases? Well, the story started with uh, somebody who came to me. I thought she was a student, and she said, Professor, can you tell them of the Chinese race? I said, there's no way I'm going to do it. You know, you cannot tell the person's race from, in any way, there's no, race is a social construct. So she told me the story that she was uh, that she came from Indonesia, mm -hmm. Chinese from Indonesia, and she had fled in 1998 uh, because of the, the the biggest upheaval in the history of Indonesia in recent history in 1998, and she had fled along with 100,000 other people. She mm -hmm. came to the U.S. and she applied for asylum to argue that she was persecuted, Chinatowns were burnt, and women were raped in public. And when she applied for asylum, the immigration officer in Anaheim said that, but you have not proof that you're of Chinese, you're of the Chinese race. And she said, how do I do it? And mm. she said, go find an anthropologist. Mm. So she found me and asked me to help her. Mm. And her first question was, can you tell I'm of the Chinese race? Of course I couldn't answer that question. And then she, then I, I thought to myself, if I don't do it, you know, I know about, you know, I grew up in Malaysia, I'm from Southeast Asia. If I don't do it, who else can I ask to help her? So I sat down and I did it. Mm -hmm. And uh, with, you know, quite a bit of effort, I was able to verify that she was of Chinese origin from Indonesia. The thing is, she didn't even have a Chinese name. Mm. She didn't speak Chinese. And I was able to do it. So that was how I got started. When the judge approved her case, other attorneys learned about it and they asked me for help. So it was kind of um, by word of mouth. I got involved for the past 20 years doing that. You see, according to the 19. 51 UN okay. Convention on Refugees. We have to verify that somebody is persecuted on account of five grounds. Race, religion, nationality, mm -hmm. membership in a particular social group, that usually means uh, gender and sexuality and mm -hmm. political opinion. So if she uh, wants to apply for asylum to become a refugee in the US, she must prove that she was persecuted because of a Chinese race. Hmm. But how do you prove somebody's race? You cannot tell from looks alone. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as Chinese race. Right. If you're looking for Chinese race, well, you can, you can look up the idea in a book, but that's about like 50 years old. Nobody mm -hmm. uses that idea anymore. And uh, genetic science has you know, proven to us there's no such a thing as uh, Chinese race, black race, or white race, or, mm. or Latinx race. Race is a social construct. It was constructed, there's a history to the emergence of the idea of race. There's a set of uh, uh, social processes that maintain 
the idea of race, and there's also uh, you know ways that the idea of race is reproduced. So for this woman who came to me, I gave her a pseudonym of Dewey. I couldn't tell that she was of the Chinese race mm. because race is a, a bankrupt idea, right? right? But at the same time, she didn't have a Chinese name. Mm-hmm. She didn't speak Chinese. She didn't know how to write Chinese. So if I could use culture as a proxy, as a substitute for race, mm-hmm. perhaps I could say that, oh yeah, you know, she has a Chinese name, she speaks Chinese, but she had none of the above because of uh, Suharto's policy for 30 years of cultural erasure okay. that banned uh, the Chinese from uh, learning Chinese. He closed all the Chinese schools, stopped all the Chinese presses, and forced the Chinese to change uh, into non-Chinese sounding name. Right. Yeah, as I mentioned in the book, uh, Dr. Ibrahim, uh, who is a rather famous dentist from Indonesia who practices in, in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. is of Chinese origin. And right. he used the name Ibrahim from a common name that was found in Indonesia. So this woman, Dewey, um, um, based on, I, I couldn't prove her race, okay? okay? And I couldn't prove that she was of Chinese origin based on the cultural attributes that we think belong to what a person, a, who a person, a Chinese is. Right, right, and, and that's the kind of conflict that you run into when you are teaching and you're mentioning that race is a social construct and that's mentioned in the book as well but in asylum cases you have to prove it because that's what the officers are asking you for right, right? so it's <coughs> a disconnect um how did that how does this pro- paradox kind of affect your teaching and working on your cases yeah so for the case i what i did was i i did mention in my report i wrote that you know race is a social construct right but i could uh based on my research and the history of uh, Indonesia, mm-hmm. I could uh, attribute the fact that she came from the southeastern part of China, or the people, the Chinese in Indonesia came from the southeastern part of China. Right. So her appearance is consistent with the people who had migrated from the southeastern part of China. Got it. China is a huge country, right? Mm-hmm. There are people in Xinjiang, uh, it's a place in the northwestern part of China, and I've been to Xinjiang. People in Xinjiang look like uh, people from the Middle East mm. or from northern Italy. Right. They are they are, they have mixtures with uh, Kazakhs and um, and Mongolians and uh, people from Afgan- Afghanistan. Right. So they look different from the people from the southeastern part of China. People from the northeastern part of China. You know, they are descendants from the Mongols and the Manchus. Again, they look mm-hmm. different. So you cannot assume that China has one look for its people. Right. So for this woman, so I had to say that, you know, based on the history of migration, of migration of the Chinese from China to Indonesia, her appearance appears to be consistent with the people in the southeastern part of China. Okay. Right, because we tend to think of China specifically or any other Asian country as a monolith of this is how these people look like. 
but that's not true that's you know not true. that's not true at all um so you have to kind of work around that and get very specific with areas to then prove that this is consistent or this person has cultural practices that have been passed down from yeah. that area so that was for the court case right and for my teaching right mm-hmm. to answer the second part of your question so for my teaching i teach a course on the anthropology of race and racism mm. so i just follow through with what we have that is really proven without controversy the fact that we are of one human race mm-hmm. race is an idea that was constructed mm-hmm. right and then whatever else that happened are uh, the conventions are uh, the processes of society mm-hmm. so I could go more into it but it's a longer story Right, it's it's very. I think it's very complicated because yes. we use race so much, but then without realizing that it was right. actually just created. Right. Um, so we can move on to some of the other questions and come back to that if we have time. Um, so as you conduct your investigations to prove somebody belongs to a specific group, religion of is, is of a particular political opinion, um, there's must be a really heavy burden on you because the asylum's life technically does depend on that report. Um, so what is your mindset in dealing with this pressure of the job? Oh, it was very difficult. Mm-hmm. The lawyers always say, I want the report last week. <laughs> you know, and for us teaching in the uh, California State University systems, we teach four courses per term, mm. which is a lot of work. But somebody's lives depend on me. Mm-hmm. So I gave them my very best. Mm-hmm. I didn't do anything else except working for them and on their cases for their attorneys. And so you know, to put it in simpler terms, I don't go shopping, I don't watch TV, I don't go on vacation. Right. I just do the things I need to do for my family to cook and to eat, mm-hmm. <laughs> to rest and to sleep and to take care of my students. So there was a heavy burden, but at the same time, I thought that I'm just so grateful for the opportunity mm-hmm. to understand what's going on in that part of the world through their very intimate and personal stories that they have not shared with anybody else except their lawyers and me. Mm-hmm. They told me that I'm probably the only person in the world who know their story, mm-hmm. which they must tell in order to apply for asylum. And it allows me, the stories allow me to look at the underbelly of societies that we don't hear about. Mm-hmm. And about the uh, difficult human condition that we don't hear about. So I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. The work was very difficult and, and that's why I said, it must be written up about the stories of the asylum seekers or else we never know because we tend to stereotype asylum seekers as looking for the, you know, for gold mountain in this in the US are looking yeah. for. You know. So first of all, it's very commendable that you give up so many things in your life to help these asylum seekers get asylum in the US. But then also I wonder if this is your reports are also essentially some sort of a history in progress where you have these records and these reports from place from you know events that are not getting reported in newspapers of those countries essentially what your reports are a history of these places and of these events that are not well known around the world 
Right. I, I feel that having the chance to hear their stories, mm -hmm. I feel that I'm a witness mm -hmm. to what has happened in those countries. The governments and their, the police are not going to say that, oh, we did such and such to those women or to those minority groups or to this or to that. Mm -hmm. They're not going to report on the atrocities that were committed. Yeah. So I felt that, in a way, you're right, it's a, rec it's a record Mm -hmm. of, uh, of, of more than just trauma, but right. it's atrocity. Right. Okay? Mm -hmm. The governments may have policies that are really good, but at the same time, uh, people are not helped. Mm -hmm. and people who apply for asylum must prove that their governments are unwilling or unable to help them. Mm -hmm. They cannot just say, oh, no, I'm going to come to the U.S. No, we have to have to look at the, the records of what happens in their home country where their governments have not been able or unwilling or unable to help the people who are persecuted. Mm. So. so they're in such a tough position that they have nowhere to turn to and you having the abilities that you have, the skills that you have can help them. So it's not really, I think, at that point a choice either, right? You know, I, the skill set I learned as I went along because mm -hmm. I didn't have a guidebook I could look at. There was no toolkit I could look at. Right. And uh, just, I just learned as I went along, you mm -hmm. know, with a single goal that this person needs help. And if we don't help that person, mm -hmm. uh, uh, they, they, they will be de deported. Mm -hmm. And also to face a very uncertain future right. that could mean death. And having that as a burden on me the choice was uh, very clear that right. you have to work on it. It doesn't matter what. Right. That actually reminds me of one of the cases that I was reading about in your book. It's about Rani and her child uh, escaping the abuse of her husband or her in-laws, and she had nowhere really to turn to, not the law enforcement, not her own family. And while you were in court for her hearing, uh, you missed the birth of your own grandchild. And I think that's perfectly indicative of the kind of sacrifices you know you make to help these people. It's a small sacrifice if you think about it, if you compare to right. somebody's life mm -hmm. who depends on you, for, on you traveling. I was actually for that case. I went to Chicago. Mm -hmm. I went to Chicago and uh, and met her in court. I I conducted the interview by phone, mm -hmm. and at the beginning with a conference call with her attorney. For the first time, I went to court, and by going to court, you're proving to your the, the judge mm -hmm. and the government counsel that you are serious about the case. They are willing to travel, right? Besides spending many years working on the case and writing the report in a way that's legible, concise, that reports on the country condition that brought about the persecution, or cultural elements that brought about the culture, the, the persecution. So I think the, uh, the lawyers and the judges take the anthropologists seriously if there's the, the kind of devotion and the time put into the work. Mm -hmm. So I think there was no, it, the choice was very clear. I mean, right. I feel that I can always make up to my daughter and my grandkid, mm -hmm. and I did. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I know I'm paid by the university, you know, I, I draw a salary every month because I teach there. Yeah. And uh, they have, asylum seekers don't have the money, 
right? Exactly. They are not allowed to work. They don't have the money. And for me to do it, to do the case I do is because of of the issues of what is what is just and what is right, right? Mm-hmm. We can talk all we want about social justice, but if we don't do what we can do to help the person next to us, then why bother? Right. right? So we must simply yeah. showing my commitment mm-hmm. to an idea, to a principle that I believe in. Right. And, and I find that just very commendable. So apart from this book, you also uh, authored a play. It's titled House Guest from Xinjiang, which discusses you know the intersectionality of religion and ethnicity. Um, so how do the play? How how does that play and the situations that are presented in this book connect to the intersectionality of identity? That's kind of the main topic, you know. I I wrote the play uh, primarily because teaching about the Islamic world is so difficult. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't talk about religion. How do you teach the subject? I mean, you could teach and like. As you have seen from the book, I cover a few cases, maybe at least two. I cover religion as an issue, right? And in court, and how do you teach that? We don't teach that. I mean, religion can be very boring. Okay, mm-hmm. so I thought, how do we share with our students uh, what happens in the the world, mm-hmm. especially in Asia, in Southeast Asia? In Southeast Asia, you have the largest Muslim population in the world. Right. Not in the Middle East, right? Asia. And, and, and China also has a huge Muslim population. So when my, the dean of my university and a couple of faculty were going to Xinjiang uh, to establish an exchange program, mm-hmm. I said, I'm coming along. Mm-hmm. I want to... I've certain questions in mind for my research in Xinjiang because of the large Muslim population. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in Malaysia, so I'm familiar with the, the Muslim population in Malaysia. But what about in a different country? You know, I've been right. to Indonesia, but what about in China? How is that different? So I, so I went to Xinjiang, and uh, after uh, we came back, my dean identified a student, a Hui, Muslim student, mm-hmm. a Chinese Hui Muslim student, who could come to my university as an exchange student. Uh-huh. She was able to get a, a fee waiver, but nobody, she, could, she didn't have room and board. So I agreed to house her, to give her room and board. Uh-huh. So she stayed in my home. And that turned out to be a very interesting experience. I mean, I'm familiar mm-hmm. with all the important cultural requirements of being a Muslim, so I, I did all the things I did. Mm-hmm. You know, pork, you know, yeah. everything else in my home while she was with us. Mm-hmm. Very easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, while she was with me, I learned about my own cultural blindness in the sense that she was mm-hmm. afraid of the piggy bank in the room, my daughter's room, where she was staying. But, oh my gosh, I thought, I thought I've known about the culture, but there was uh-huh. something I didn't know, I didn't see, I didn't foresee. Mm-hmm. So that tells me about the limits of what we know, or our understanding of what else is going on. And so I mentioned that story to uh, C.Y. Lee, who is of 
the flower drum song, mm-hmm. fame is a novelist. He passed away a couple years ago. He wrote the flower drum song that was on Broadway. He was made into a film. He was a, I would take him out for lunch a couple of times mm-hmm. a year. I told the story, he said, write the story. Mm-hmm. I thought, yes, I would, but I don't know how to write. He said, you know the, the speech given by the dean, right? Mm-hmm. You know how deans talk. I said, yes, of course, we know how deans talk. Yeah. <laughs> so I wrote the speech by the dean, but I also created a character mm-hmm. of, of the dean. I, I, I named him Jose Medina. Mm-hmm. Such a common name in the U.S., Jose, common last name, first name. And Medina, the reason is it's a common last name for many Latinos, mm-hmm. but it's also the second holiest city in the Islamic world, right? Right. And Medina also means walled city, mm-hmm. which I had learned when I was in Xinjiang. So I thought, I, I need to write the play. So I wrote the play. But as I developed the play, I created the character of the anthropologist in the mm-hmm. home, married to a white guy. And they were you know, husband and wife, no quarrel, nothing, married for 40 years. But after the Muslim student was arrested by the FBI, mm-hmm. thinking that she was a terrorist. The woman, Asian woman professor felt that the husband wasn't supporting her. Mm. And that was where the tension came in. This is where intersectionality came in. Right. They were in love, the husband and wife, for 40 years. At the same time, he couldn't understand that, that she, that culture was important, that her identity was, as a Chinese was important, because that Hui Muslim woman was arrested because of a Chinese nurse. Mm-hmm. So that the kind of things that came out through through the through the, the different scenes that I have kind of built into the play. Mm-hmm. So as this was a way for me to talk about really a very complicated subject mm-hmm. through a play that can be uh, shown to the public and to my students. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, how do you talk about intersectionality? Right. Students are not going to read another paper on that subject. And I think the best way to also explain and learn about intersectionality or any of these to- big words, I would yeah, say, yeah. big controversial words, is through stories. And I think the book does a great job of covering quite a few of those stories, and the play must have done a really good job. And I think I also understand it better when a person explains it to me or I see it in the movie or a play what that looks like you know when you belong to a different religion that uh, to a religion that might people might not might associate it with a specific country or if you look a certain way and then people might not believe you belong to a specific place so it's um i think it's complicated and sometimes it's better shown than be told in words and That's i think right. that play must have done a good job of that yeah so um what who is someone else you know that we could be interviewing on this podcast to learn more about asylum cases from asia from asia mm-hmm. i'm not quite sure mm-hmm. I, I must say that um i do not know mm-hmm. i mean you could talk to my co-author for a couple of chapters attorney joanne Ye, who's an in- immigration attorney and I mentioned the book, I met her in court mm-hmm. when she discovered that I had written this report and she was covering the case for another attorney. And she said, how did you write that? I've never seen a report like this. I said, well, let's hang around and talk about it and 
since mm -hmm. then, uh, we have been uh, uh, working together for me mm -hmm. to understand more about what happens in law and for her to understand what happens in culture, in how we use idea of culture in, in court cases and in other situations. So you could interview her, I could recommend her to your right. group. And in terms of uh, people doing work on Asia, I'm probably the only one so far. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first uh, worked on the, the cases, I, I, I searched, of course, everywhere for, for help. And I learned of uh, Anthony Good, who is now retired from uh, a former dean at the University of Edinburgh. Mm. I, in fact, traveled there uh -huh. to meet him, besides hang up with a, with a student, a student was going to Edinburgh. So I went up and said, Dr. Good, how did you do it? You know, give me some help. And he wrote the first book on, as an anthropologist on asylum seekers in the UK. And then John Campbell from SOAS School of Oriental and African Research came up with a book on asylum seekers from Africa in the UK. But for the US, I think mm -hmm. I have the only book on asylum seekers from Asia. Okay. Since my book came out, uh, Leila Rodriguez came up with an edited volume on asylum seekers from Central America and Mexico. So these are the four solid books on right. the subject. So I'm looking mm -hmm. for friends and <laughs> colleagues who do asylum cases from Asia. Right. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's limited expertise, you know? Limited, limited, but you know, that's why I wrote the book because it needs to be done. Uh, the mm -hmm. world is changing besides, uh, rap, you know, with the climate crisis, we're going to have more people leaving their homeland searching for help and we need, we need to rethink uh, the 1951 UN Convention refugee criteria, mm. grounds for asylum, what about you know climate change, you know, what do we do, how do we rethink, so we need right. really the more scholars, the better, both in the legal profession and also social, cultural, legal scholars to think about how to think about all these issues as people cross borders. Got it. Got it. So there's clearly a lot to be learned here and a lot to be talked about because this is a topic that we don't really see in the mass media or anywhere really. I've never, before reading your book, heard about what kind of specific problems that asylum seekers from Asia um, they encounter. And I think I didn't really realize that anthropologists would have some sort of a role to play in this. And I think that speaks to not only my ignorance, but also the fact that we just don't talk about it, you know? We just don't know that that's something, despite having taken anthropology courses, you know, I had no clue that that's something that could be used in court yeah. to prove. Yeah, so I, I've been, I've done that for the past 20 years, and mm. and I think in terms of, you know, what kind of, what makes me a, an expert? Mm -hmm. What adds up to my expertise as an anthropologist for this kind of work. And I've been drawing on the work of uh, Livia Holden. Mm -hmm. uh, she's at the Sorbonne, somebody I met when she was at Oxford. And I met her at Oxford. And she's been using the idea of cultural expertise in, the, in legal, in litigation, in mm -hmm. mediation, and how anthropologists, in fact, in different countries in Europe, she's a principal investigator on a project. Uh -huh. in Europe to look at what countries, what the legal professions in different countries have been using cultural expertise in their legal processes. Mm -hmm. 
So there is a lot of work being done, but a team of scholars led by Dr. Holden is finally documenting through her studies, uh, looking at how different legal professions, such as Italy, Spain, Sweden, uh, France, I had a chance to meet some of these uh, mm -hmm. legal professionals when I was there uh -huh. in 2019 uh, to look at uh, how is it done? Right. What can be done? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I think so. there's a need for, for anthropologists and other social scientists to be involved mm -hmm. because we know about culture, right. we know about society, mm -hmm. and it's a matter of framing those ideas, translating those ideas for the public so that our knowledge is accessible to, in this case, the legal profession. Got it, got it. So there is more work to be done, and I Sorry. hope your book inspires and educates future anthropologists who can do this. So thank you so much, Professor Nin, for being with us today. Um, I would highly recommend any readers to be reading this book if they uh, have any interest in this, or even if they don't. It's a very, I think it's a book that reads pretty easily. Um, I was able to get through it uh, without necessarily, you know, having to stop or really you explain things really well so it's a great book and i would highly recommend it to everyone um thank you for your time today thank you so much for having me Alrighty, that is the end of today's podcast fullertonians thank you for listening be sure to follow the fulton observer on instagram facebook and twitter to keep up with the latest fullerton news full-length stories of all our headlines are available on the fulton observer website or you can subscribe to the print edition that gets mailed to your home every two weeks you can now also see what events are happening in Fulton with Jesse Latour's new weekly articles that cover upcoming events in the community. This podcast is curated entirely by college student interns. If you would like to support our college journey, please donate at the Fulton Observer's website. If you would like to sponsor this podcast, email ads at fultonobserver.com. If you have any ideas for who we should interview next, email contact at fultonobserver.com or DM us on social media. Special thanks to Professor Nin for her time. Jackson Henry edited the podcast, Bianca Bravo manages communications, and I'm Arush Navid, your host.